0: Policing in America has come under intense scrutiny in recent years.
1: But one subset of policing hasn't gotten quite as much notice. We'll hear about diversity in security forces on California college campuses.
0: Plus, the latest on the backlog at the state's unemployment agency and an update on school reopenings.
1: Welcome to California State of Mind from Cal Matters and Cap Radio. I'm Elizabeth Aguilera in Los Angeles.
0: And I'm Nicole Nixon in Sacramento. Elizabeth, it has been quite a week in news. We have more announcements on vaccine eligibility. We have a new attorney general. And there are some national tragedies that have been reverberating here in California.
1: So much going on, Nicole. But let's talk first about what everyone has been waiting for, a date when every adult in California can get a vaccination. Governor Newsom announced that it's April 15th. So now you can look forward to that date instead of April 15 being like tax day. (laughs) But on April 1st, people 50 plus will be eligible. So they might want to try to get in there before uh, everyone else can and try to get an appointment.
0: I imagine that the appointment systems in the middle of April are going to be slammed. Also, the governor finally
1: named a new attorney general, Alameda Assemblyman Rob Bonta. I watched that announcement too, Nicole, and it was interesting because the lead up to that was the governor telling several other people who had been thought to be candidates, like, no, not you, (laughs) no, not you, which was very um, bachelorette. Ish, yeah, uh, like the show. But uh, what do you think tipped it in Bonta's favor over the other candidates?
0: Well, Bonta sort of caps off this list of historic appointments that Newsom has been making over the past few months. Right. Bonta will be the first Filipino attorney general if he's confirmed by the legislature. We also now have the first Latino U.S. senator from California, the first black woman running the secretary of state's office. The other thing, though, is that Bonta aligns pretty closely with Newsom on issues like uh, criminal justice reform, policing reforms. These will both be really big topics in the legislature this year, although Bonta won't be there anymore to pass some of those bills. But as attorney general, he can implement some
1: of them. That's true. That's an interesting question that was also raised with Shirley Weber, who you mentioned as the new secretary of state, because she had so many issues that she was a front runner on, but is now sort of moved into that new position. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to see how that works out. Another thing that's top of mind, especially for me, having just been in Colorado, is the shooting in Boulder. Second shooting, I think, in less than a week. You know, 10 people there died, including one police officer who was also the father of seven children. It makes me think about how the grocery store is the one place where most all of us are still going and have been through this entire year. Right. Mm -hmm. Even if you didn't go anywhere else, you made it to the grocery store. You waited in the line outside. You might go in. You're quick. But it is a place where everybody has to go. So I think about these people going about their Monday morning errands and then running into a gunman.
0: Right. So tragic. And once again, these shootings just reignited this debate about gun control in states across the country. And we know that California has some of the strictest gun laws in the nation, but it's pointed out that there are still some holes here. Um, One thing in particular, just before he was sworn into the Biden administration, former Attorney General Javier Becerra sort of quietly admitted in court documents that this state website where Californians are supposed to go to register their firearms It's so badly designed that thousands of people have been unable to use it. So once again, mass shooting, once again, talk about uh, gun control, gun laws, and all these holes that people want to patch up.
1: I think the frustrating part for a lot of people is that every time something like this happens, there are all these discussions, and then there really isn't much change. You know, and people always go back to Sandy Hook. Like, if you can watch this happen to a bunch of little children and nothing happened, Mm -hmm. then what is going to change when it's adults in a grocery store or Mm -hmm. you know the spas in atlanta meanwhile nicole in minnesota A jury has been impaneled in the murder trial of former policeman Derek Chauvin. He's the Minneapolis police officer accused of murdering George Floyd after kneeling on Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. You remember Floyd's death sparked protests against police brutality nationwide. Those protests extended to colleges and universities where students called on administrators to disband campus police departments or end relationships with local police. And that happened here in California, too.
0: Exactly. Well, we are going to hear now from two college journalists who have looked into diversity within those campus police forces here in California. Omar Rashad and Katherine Swartz are fellows with the Cal Matters College Journalism Network. Their recent story was produced in partnership with Open Campus Media. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us.
2: Thank you for having us.
0: Well, what sparked your interest in reporting this story about diversity in campus police? I think we're all aware that there's significant debate right now across the country, you know, about whether outside law enforcement should be on campus at all. So why this specific story for you? I see it as kind of an
3: intersection that's often overlooked. So there's justice reporters, uh, police reporters who work usually in larger cities and report on those police departments. And then you'll have higher education reporters that are focused on universities. But those policing stories at universities can oftentimes get lost in the shuffle. And just from my conversations with students, I know some people aren't even aware that they have a police department if they haven't interacted with them. But others, and that's oftentimes students of color, are disproportionately aware that uh, these campuses do have police officers because a lot of them have had interactions with those officers, which is something we touch upon in our article.
0: Well, let's start with this broad picture of what you found about the police departments on California's college campuses. How diverse are these police forces overall?
2: So we filed a public records request with California's Commission on Peace Officer Standards and Training, um, otherwise known as POST. And we found there are right around 800 police officers spread out across California's public universities you know the 23 CSUs and the 10 UC campuses Um, and just about half of all those police officers are white when you compare that breakdown with the student populations at those campuses which is just under a quarter white you know there's obviously a mismatch there and when you get more granular and you look at specific campuses That's where you're able to really see some pretty stark disparities, including at CSU Monterey Bay, for example, whose students are just about a quarter white, but its police officers are 80% white. At the same time, there are some other campuses that seem to really have, you know, a police department that, you know, does reflect its student body. Take CSU East Bay, for example, you know, 15% of its students are white and 16% of its police officers are white. But once again, when you sort of zoom out and look at the state of California's 33 public universities, 19 of them have police departments where 50 percent or more um, of the sworn police officers there are white.
0: Well, you asked several students on various campuses around the state for their thoughts on campus police diversity. What did they tell you about the value of that diversity and why it's important to them? Catherine? So we heard mixed things from students, actually. Some of the students
3: that we talked to, for example, I spoke with a student from CSU East Bay, which is one of the most uh, diverse police departments in the state. And he said that the the diversity in a police department, that it's a step in the right direction. But that it shouldn't be the end-all be-all for fixing police departments because he said that we really need to center the experiences of students of color and work uh, to eliminate use of force on those campuses. So I know with the students of color that I talked to, some of them, they felt it was good that police departments reflected the diversity that they felt in their student body and that made interactions more comfortable But then as one student told me, it's hard to improve a system that's designed to oppress. So we are seeing mixed opinions from students on this issue.
2: I definitely talked with students who are more on the side of the fence that really felt like regardless of the racial background of police officers, they're part of this larger system that inherently targets students of color, specifically Black people. And that was a really interesting perspective. And I think that's um, a perspective that is definitely driving this larger conversation about policing on university campuses. You know, in what ways does policing target students of color? Does race even matter in the first place? Um, that that was something, you know, students um, sort of even questioned um, as, as a concept.
0: It's interesting to talk about this in the context of this, you know, larger debate about uh, police forces in general. What did the police forces that you... That you were looking at for this story have to say about that? Uh, Well, with the police officers that I spoke to, uh,
3: one thing that they definitely focused on was that when a police department is diverse, such as CSU East Bay, which was one campus I talked to, that it's important because they're reflecting their student population in a specific way that another police department can't. So besides racial demographics, one thing that Uh, CSU East Bay in particular really touched on is finding police department uh, or finding police officers that would fit into the student community, not just in terms of racial demographics, but in terms of the campus culture as a whole. So something that they do to really change the hiring practice is they have a four-person panel and only one of the people on those hiring panels is a police officer. The other people are uh, faculty and staff members just so that the whole campus is really aware of who they're hiring and they can find someone that fits into that CSU East
0: Bay community. What are some specific schools where the campus police does not reflect the student population?
2: You know, CSU Monterey Bay is um, a campus with a student population that's just about 25% um, white, Um, yet its police officers are about 80% white. Another campus that was at the top of the list when we looked through the data was um, CSU Channel Islands where just about, again, 25% of the students are white, but about 76% of officers are white.
3: When I talked to officers at some of the more diverse police departments, something that they touched upon that led to that diversity was that the local community around them was diverse, so they had more people to pull from, just in terms of the hiring pool. But when you're looking at some of these top universities that have the largest disparities between white officers and white students, you see that some of those campuses are in very diverse areas, thinking of CSU San Bernardino or UC Riverside. Those are some that are near the top of our list of that disparity, but those are more racially diverse communities.
0: Interesting. Well, Catherine, what did officials at Cal State and the UC system say in response to your findings?
3: So one of the things with the Cal State and UC systems when you're looking at policing that surprises people is that there's not a lot of institutional overhead when it comes to the way departments are run. So there's not one CSU entity that's in charge of policing for all of the CSUs. And there's not one UC head for all of the UCs. And that can be a positive element because police departments can employ certain practices that work well for their campus and their community in terms of hiring. But on the other hand, it means that there's uh, significant differences from one campus to another when you're looking at hiring practices and when you're looking at what do they prioritize and do they prioritize uh, diversity within their police department. That answer may differ from one campus to another. You told us what you
0: heard from students. Does diversifying actually create better relationships with the communities that police serve? Like, are there studies that show this? So we did
3: speak to researchers and faculty at CSU and UC universities, and the studies that we are pulling from in this article show that non-white officers are just as likely as white officers to shoot civilians of color, and that diversifying police agencies doesn't necessarily create better relationships within the community. But those studies, just to point out, those are coming from larger cities, and I think there is a lack of research overall on college police departments. That's something where there's a lot of room for growing. But I will say that from the police lieutenants and police officers that I spoke to, uh, they're more touching on that anecdotal side where they've seen an effect. So just in the individual interactions with students or interactions they themselves have had with other officers, they're noting that the diversity makes a difference to them. So on that individual level, people are expressing that there is a difference and there is a benefit. But when you're looking at larger studies, uh, the data shows that diversifying police agencies does not create better relationships necessarily.
0: Well, best of luck to both of you through the rest of your um, education. Omar Rashad is a data and investigations reporter with the Mustang News at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. And Catherine Swartz is a news editor with the Daily Nexus at UC Santa Barbara. Both are also fellows with the Cal Matters College Journalism Network. So great to have you both with us. Thanks for sharing your reporting. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Coming up, would you believe that things could get worse at the state's unemployment agency? Believe it.
0: Oh, I believe it. (laughs) We will get an update on computer woes at the EDD, plus the latest on school openings. Stay tuned for more California State of Mind.
1: It's California State of Mind from CAP Radio and Cal Matters. I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. And I'm Nicole Nixon. It's been more than a year
0: since the pandemic started, and there are many kids who haven't seen the actual inside of a classroom since then. But that is changing. It could happen faster now that the CDC has released new recommendations on desk spacing in classrooms.
1: And just as schools are starting to figure it out, another deadline is looming for Californians who found themselves unemployed last year due to the COVID-19 shutdowns. Their 12 months is about to run out, and they'll have to file a new claim to continue getting benefits. Joining me to discuss these issues are CalMatters reporters Ricardo Cano and Lauren Hepler. Ricardo, Lauren, thanks so much for coming back to California State of Mind. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks, Elizabeth. Happy to be here. Well, Ricardo, let's start with you. Some kids are heading back to school in person, right? Up and down the state now. But not everyone has a strategy in place yet. What's the latest on reopening plans for school districts? Has the state's incentive program been effective?
4: Yeah, so we've seen a lot of movement over the last few weeks uh, with regards to schools reopening. Governor Gavin Newsom recently said that the state is projecting about 9,000 of the state's 11,000 public schools will be uh, partially open or open uh, for in-person instruction. And so that really is a really kind of big turnaround uh, in terms of what we were looking at in January when most schools were completely closed. A lot of that has had to do with more with uh, the, you know, vaccination availability for teachers declining case rates. And so that really has shifted the wind, so to speak, with regards to the legislative deal that the governor signed uh, earlier this month, even though it feels longer than that. I'm not sure that that ever really had the impact compared with the other two factors that I mentioned. April 1st is the initial deadline for schools to be open for hybrid or in-person. In some school districts, that was an incentive, but um, again, it it was kind of peanuts compared to the fact that case rates have dramatically declined over the last six weeks.
1: Well, so, Ricardo, I want to ask about this because I know this came across recently. The CDC announced new guidelines, right, saying desks only need to be three feet apart. A lot of people are talking about that. Does that actually change the equation for school districts making these decisions about getting kids back in the classroom?
4: You know, that seems to be very significant, you know, when you think about uh, the discussions that schools are having locally about what the fall is going to look like and what schools are able to do now. The guidance has had a pretty significant trickle-down effect so far. It allows schools to essentially operate full time, five days a week, obviously with uh, the face masking and, and the safety precautions that accompany all that. But schools aren't, if they, if they move forward with this, aren't going to have to keep going with the hybrid scheduling where, you're bringing in kids for a half day or you know, a couple days uh, out of the week. And so now the, the discussions that that guidance change has prompted is, will we see more schools in the state begin offering full in-person instruction this spring? Are we going to see more schools open up for middle and high school students, which um, still you know, face kind of uh, steeper odds to be in the classroom? So it kind of shifted that dynamic.
1: Well, Ricardo, let's talk about students with special needs and the challenges they and their parents are facing. You know, we worked on a story together this week about that. What stood out to you? What did you hear from folks?
4: I think, you know, what stood out was just the frustration, right, from some parents. This isn't uh, across the board, but we know that Some students with special needs have gone more than a year without in-person services, without getting speech therapy in person, occupational therapy, you know, assessments. Just hearing parents in the Bay Area, in LA, uh, just talk about how they're seeing their kids regress physiologically, you know, with with their motor skills. It's a very significant impact that long-term school closures have had on, on some students.
1: Well, here's hoping that the state is able to help kids who may be falling behind to get caught up and back on track after all of this. That's CalMatters' Ricardo Cano. Let's bring Lauren Hepler into the conversation now. When we talk about people being left behind, there are millions of Californians still struggling to get their unemployment claims paid, and the State Department tasked with serving them continues to struggle. And that's putting it nicely, I think. Can you tell us about the latest tech problems with the Employment Development Department website, Lauren, and what it means for people waiting to get paid?
5: Yes, struggle is definitely kind of the ongoing theme here. The latest issue this week was that the State Employment Development Department's website was unable to process claimants' information over the weekend and was still plagued with difficulties on Monday. Um, So both the website and spokespeople have acknowledged that there were intermittent issues, kind of whatever that means. Um, They have still said that hundreds of thousands of people were able to get through and certify claims, but the bigger issue here is that this is one of many ongoing issues. I'm still hearing from people being asked over and over again to upload pictures of their driver's licenses or scans of their faces to verify that they aren't fraudsters. People are still missing hundreds or thousands of dollars after debit card payment disputes with uh, the unemployment contractor, Bank of America. So at the end of the day, some people are just feeling defeated. It feels like one thing after another, and they're really wondering like, is it even worth it to deal with all the bureaucracy at this point?
1: I know. I feel like we could have you on every week to talk about what's happening for people on their unemployment. But the timing of these tech troubles seems particularly terrible. Like what happens to the thousands of Californians who've been unemployed for 12 months? Because aren't they required to file claims again after that period of time?
5: Right. So the issue now is that you've probably heard about the big stimulus bill that got passed in Washington a few weeks ago now, and that extends some important unemployment benefits. So people are going to be getting a supplemental $300 a week through September. If you're on the self-employed program, the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program um, or the Pandemic Emergency Unemployment Compensation Program, lots of acronyms here, um, those will also be extended for 29 weeks. So that's a long time, obviously, Obviously, people are wanting to make sure they're signed up for those things. And EDD has said that claims should automatically roll over, but obviously people um, are watching accounts closely. Sometimes there might be questions or glitches. So the problem is really what happens when you need to get through to someone. EDD and its contractors like Bank of America keep saying that they're hiring hundreds more people to staff the phone lines and stuff, but it just doesn't seem to be breaking through when it comes to day to day, since there are just so many millions of people trying to access these programs at the same time.
1: Lauren, the problems with EDD are big and complex. And of course, they go back to before pandemic times. But is there any progress in actually fixing these issues? I mean, what comes next?
5: Yeah. So to be honest, this is something we've been talking about a lot kind of behind the scenes because so far the state isn't really taking on the big structural issues here. Unemployment is funded by business taxes that haven't been updated in 39 years. So um, we're talking about really old systems here. But Governor Gavin Newsom has said he's not going to raise taxes this year, even though economists say this isn't a clear-cut tax hike we're talking about. We're talking about adjusting the system so that lower-wage workers are relied on less to fund the system. They want to basically have uh, white-collar workers, their employers, pay in a bit more to fund the system. Um, But that's not really what the main conversation is in Sacramento. If you look that the bills are being proposed, um, they deal with things like stronger fraud checks for making sure that jail and prison inmates are not getting benefits, something that should be pretty simple to do. Um, Another thing that should be kind of a technicality, adding a direct deposit option, like dozens of other states already do. So those are significant things, but they really don't get at some of the underlying issues that we've seen really come to a head during the pandemic.
1: Well, we'll have to see if those people are able to get through and if the department is able to fix some of those problems that they're having. That's Lauren Hepler and Ricardo Cano. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. So, Nicole, before we leave the topic of schooling, listeners might recall a few weeks ago, we asked them to write to us with ways the state could make pandemic life easier. And one of the suggestions we heard was to allow workers to use paid time off to help kids with remote learning. And we have an answer for that now, right?
0: Yes. The governor actually signed a bill to do just this. Um, This bill requires companies with more than 25 employees to give their workers up to two weeks of sick leave. You might remember this was a thing last year, but it expired in January. So workers can use this time for pretty much anything COVID-related, to quarantine, to schedule a vaccine, or take care of a sick family member, and yes, to help a child whose school or daycare is closed. And then businesses get a tax credit for providing that time, too. So good news all around.
1: That's right. And that applies to you and me, too. So thanks for the question, listener. And we welcome more of them. Write to us at yourgoldenstate at gmail.com. That's yourgoldenstate at gmail.com. And that's California State of Mind for this week. We're taking a bit of a spring break next week and we'll be back to tackle the latest on all things California after that.
0: And in the meantime, don't miss an episode of California State of Mind. Follow us, listen for free whenever you want on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you like the show, leave us a review. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time, Elizabeth. Take care.
1: Have a great break, Nicole. I'll see you soon.
0: California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio.
1: It's edited by Tess Figland and produced by Jen Picard.
0: Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Devin Cortan is the technical director.
1: Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong.
0: Nick Miller is editor at Cap Radio and Joe Barr is our chief of content. Dave Lesher is editor at Cal Matters. Our theme song is Melifera Ligustica
1: by Isaac Joel. Make sure you don't miss any episodes. Hit that subscribe button. It's free, and you'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind.
0: Support for California State of Mind comes in part from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company and from Sutter Health.